0: From the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta, welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God.
1: Our Old Testament reading this morning is from the prophet Isaiah. Chapter 25, verses 1 through 9. Hear now the word of God for you who are the people of God. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name. For you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful, and sure. For you have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. The palace of aliens is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you, cities of ruthless nations will fear you, for you have been a refuge to the poor, a refuge to the needy in their distress, a shelter from the rainstorm and a shade from the heat. When the blast of the ruthless was like a winter rainstorm, the noise of aliens like heat in a dry place, you subdued the heat, with the shade of clouds and the song of the ruthless, was stilled. On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich foods, a feast of well-aged wines, of rich food filled with marrow, of well-aged wine strained clear. And he will destroy on this mountain the shroud that is cast over all peoples the sheet that is spread over all nations, he will swallow up death forever. Then the Lord God will wipe away the tears from all faces and the disgrace of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Lo, this is our God, we have waited for him so that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvations. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God.
2: Friends, our second scripture lesson comes from the Gospel of Luke. Chapter 24, verses one through 12. Listen now again for God's word. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they came to the tomb taking the spices that they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body. While they were perplexed about this, suddenly two men in dazzling clothes stood beside them. The women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen." Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be handed over to sinners and be crucified and on the third day rise again. Then they remembered his words and returning from the tomb, they told all this to the 11 and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told this to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves. Then he went home amazed at what had happened. Friends, this is the good news of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
0: And would you join me in prayer? Lord, break open this old, old story afresh to us this day. And by the power of your Holy Spirit, would you meet us and change us, transform us to be different people than those who came into this sacred space in this sacred hour. Even to be more like your son, Jesus the Christ, it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, I think it happened during my first year of ministry here at First Presbyterian Church. I was, I was in the robing room right off to my right here. And I was preparing for the 11 o'clock service. The door was open so I could hear people coming in, finding their way to their seats, when all of a sudden I heard someone yelling. And so I hurried into the sanctuary, and there was a man who came off of Peachtree Street, who came down the center aisle, who made his way up these chancel steps, stood right here next to the pulpit, and he started preaching to anybody who had already gathered to get their seats early, to all those who were coming in. And I have to tell you, he was quite good. (laughs) For the minute or so that he was up there, he was really getting into it. He had all the mannerisms. He had a fire in his belly. His preaching was fierce. His thoughts and his words, however, were scattered. They were confusing, and quite frankly, they were incoherent. In other words, his sermon didn't make much sense. Two of our capable security officers came in and gently guided him down uh, the chancel steps and out of the sanctuary, he was still preaching all the way. Now, friends, I I think about this man from time to time, especially when I am preparing the content of my own sermons in the hope that they make some sense. And on a day like today, on Easter Sunday, when the preacher is tasked to proclaim the historical bodily resurrection of Jesus following his crucifixion, to herald the message and to lift up the claim that this story makes about God— the claim that this story makes about us, the claim this story makes about what is good and what is evil, the claim that this story makes about what life is all about. When the preacher is tasked to echo the question spoken to the women who came to the tomb on that first Easter morning, why do you look for the living among the dead? The preacher may feel as if they need to take a look over their shoulder to see if security is coming for them. Of course, this will not happen, I suppose, right, Officer Poe? But you see the point I'm trying to make. There is a certain strangeness. There is a certain level of incoherence and dissonance that emerges when the Easter story is told to people who pride themselves on thinking clearly and rationally. People like us, people living in a secular age. The Easter story can land for the modern hearer the way our man off the streets sermon landed for many who were in church that day. It doesn't make a lot of sense. It's hard to believe. Now, when I say it's hard to believe, you may think I'm referring to God's power to raise someone from the dead. But I'm not talking about that part of the story. Statistically speaking, 90% of us in this space, watching online in Fifield Hall, 90% of us believe That there's a God. Statistically speaking, 90% of us believe in some sort of divine being. If you're part of that 90%, you are categorized as a theist. As a theist. And most theists... Posit that God had something to do with how the universe and our world and how life itself came into being. And so whether you believe in the Big Bang or whether you believe in evolution or whether you believe in six-day creationism or anything in between, if you are a theist, chances are you believe that God had something to do with this. So as a theist... It stands to reason that this same God that had something to do with the establishment of the universe could also possess the power to raise one single solitary human being from the dead. Right? Look around. Look at Atlanta in bloom. Look at creation itself raising someone from the dead for this God who had something to do with all that we see, all that we experience, that's easy. Raising someone from the dead for a God who has something to do with the created order is not that far fetched. It's not hard to believe when you consider when you consider rather that that you're talking about a God who had something to do with the origins of life itself. Rather, what can be difficult to believe on a day like today, what might seem strange, what sometimes doesn't make a lot of sense for so many of us living in a secular age, is that this same creator God who raised Jesus from the dead is actually historically... Involved and present in your life. That this same God is active in the life of the world. Theologian Karl Barth once said this of preaching. I think we can expand it to also say that it relates to faith as well. He said that that faith happens, preaching happens in the context of one urgent question is it true? Is God present? The Easter message is that as an act of divine will, God raised Jesus from the dead to reveal to the created order where God is determined to stand. God is determined to stand with the living. Why do you look for the living Among the dead. He is not here. He is alive. In other words, Jesus is determined to be among the living, which also means that Jesus is determined to be among us. There is a a man in our congregation who grew up Amish Mennonite. That's actually a thing. Uh, In the mid-19th century, groups of of Amish in North America, particularly in Ohio and and in Pennsylvania, they started to move away from the old teachings and restrictions of the Amish community, and they began to align themselves with the Mennonites. Now, now to be clear, uh, this faith and this life uh, of the Amish Mennonite community was still marked by simplicity. It was still marked by conservatism. It was marked by piety and a deep, deep suspicion of the modern world. This man, who is a member of our church, his name is Richard, and he grew up in in rural Georgia as part of one of these faith communities. And he attended, in his growing up years, a church-run school. The school only went to eighth grade, and so upon completing the eighth grade, a young person would finish their schooling with that year, and they would go onto the family farm, or they would go into some sort of enterprise or business to support the community life. Richard loved school so much that he wanted to do the eighth grade all over again. I know there's middle schoolers here who find that to be the most difficult thing to believe in this hour. (laughs) But he had a passion for learning, and so he pleaded with his parents to let him do it again, and they agreed. But as the year went on, he had his second graduation from eighth grade and now was required to go to the farm and other related work within the community. During those years, however, he had a growing sense of a very specific call that God was putting on his heart. He believed that God was calling him to be a doctor, God was calling him to serve the purposes of life, to bring about God's healing gifts and wholeness and care to others. Now, this was a challenge for Richard on multiple levels. First, he had no high school diploma. Second, the Amish Mennonite community did not send their children to secular schools, let alone secular medical schools. And third, when he told the bishop of his church that God had given him the call to become a doctor, the bishop said, Oh, Richard, I'm afraid if you become a doctor, you're going to go to hell. Even with all these impediments, Richard could not shake God's call. One day he asked his parents if he could borrow their car to drive into town to visit the local public high school to get some guidance And they said to him, if you want to go, you can go, but you're going to have to walk. And so Richard walked the multiple miles, and by God's grace, he met the principal that very day, and the principal agreed to help him earn his GED, which he did. Then he helped him to to get into college and earn a bachelor's degree, which he did. And then he got into medical school and completed the requirements of of that training and the examinations, and, and he became a doctor finally fulfilling God's call on his life. But by no means, friends, and he will tell you this, was that road void of suffering. By no means was that road void of rejection or pain. You can imagine how much division and how much heartache and how much grief he endured. It cost him so much to pursue what God was calling him to do to stand on the side of life, to encourage life and care for life in living and in dying in this particular call. He was determined to bring God's gifts of healing into the world. When I think about Richard, I think about his story and how it, how it helps me understand in a very small way The immense determination of God. The determination of God to be on the side of the living. Just remember what took place just a few days ago. Humanity threw its worst at Jesus. Talk about an impediment. Humanity was determined to end God's mission in Jesus and that the cross would be the ultimate roadblock to God's healing and forgiveness and love in the world. Remember, friends, that Jesus is not the God who died of natural causes. Jesus did not die an accidental death. Jesus is the crucified God. He plays that part in history, taking on our sins and the sins of the world made manifest in our desire to be God, to replace God with our own autonomy and our desire to reign supreme over others. If you were here on Good Friday, you talked to, uh, we heard uh, the word proclaimed and, and we talked about how the cross represents supremacy narratives that we create, that creates a hierarchy of God's favor or a hierarchy of privilege in the world. That somehow, in God's created order, we can upset that kingdom and upset that order and replace it with our own and create a caste system and say, you're here and I'm here. Friends, all of that, all of that, Jesus took on the cross. He takes on our sin and he is rejected and he is despised. He suffers and he dies for the sake of God's call on his life. It's a call that will lead him to a cross. It is a call that will lead him to a dark, cold tomb. But on the third day, on the third day, God raised him from the dead and thus declares to you and to me, see, I stand on the side of life. I tear down crosses and I empty tombs. And I'm calling you to do the same. I call you, my friends, to stand with me, to stand on the side of life. By my grace, I call you to tear down the crosses that you build in your own life, that you put people on in a daily way even people closest to you, people that perhaps are sitting right next to you, I call you to tear those crosses down and empty those tombs. I call you to tear down the crosses that make you think you don't need me or, I'm at, uh, or that I'm somehow far away from you, to tear down the crosses of, of personal and collective supremacy narratives that rank people, and decide who gets God's grace and who doesn't. To tear down the crosses in which you hang yourselves, the one you fashioned with your own hands, and then put yourselves on, believing that somehow you don't deserve the life that I, the Lord your God, want to give you. Life, as Jesus said, to the fullest extent. Allow me to close with this. Throughout our our Lenten season, we have explored the scriptures and we've reflected on the places and the people with whom God stands. And as we read the scriptures, we discovered that God stands with the poor and the oppressed. We discovered that God stands with the widow and the orphan. We discovered that God stands with children. We discovered that God stands with the stranger. And we discovered that God stands with those Who suffer. The biblical witness is clear, friends. God stands on all counts. God stands with these and for these in a preferential way. And if we want to befriend God, if we want to call ourselves Christian, then we have to stand there too. And on this Easter Sunday, we have considered one more claim. That in resurrecting Jesus Christ from the dead, we acknowledge that God stands on the side of life. Which means, friends, that God stands with you. With you in this very hour. God stands with you no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what you've left undone, no matter if you have faith that can move mountains or doubts the size of mountains. You and I are called to do life with God knowing that in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, God desires to do life with you. To be sure, this life is no simple affair. It is a daily discipline. It's marked by prayer. It's marked by worship. It's, it's marked by choosing to participate in a community ethic and a community life of sacrifice, of learning, of service, and ultimately of love. It's a daily discipline to receive, like Richard did, God's call, and despite the impediments that come to us, to continue to press on by God's grace. It's a daily discipline to participate with God in tearing down crosses and emptying tombs. But this, friends, is life the way it was meant to be lived. It's the life that God intends for us. And this life, and those who live it know this to be true, this life is our joy. It's our joy. For Jesus is not to be found among the dead. He is to be found among the living. He is to be found among us. So my hope and my prayer for each and every one is to discover his presence again or perhaps for the very first time in your life to encounter the resurrected Christ in a real transformative way. May we all know that Jesus is alive with us and for us, forgiving us and loving us and leading us and calling us to stand where God stands, for that place is life itself. Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is alive. And he stands with you. Amen.